0: Today with that you know that uh, that blizzard thing. Oh, that blizzard thing. Mm-hmm. That blizzard thing. Oh well, here's the report. The National Weather Service is calling for a big blizzard
1: thing. Yes, right they are. Mm-hmm.
2: But you know, there's another reason why today is especially exciting.
0: Especially cold. Especially cold. Yeah. Okay, but the big question on everybody's lips. Yeah, yeah their chapped lips. On their chapped lips. Chap right. Lips. Do you think Phil's gonna come out and see his shadow? Punxsutawney Phil.
2: That's right, Woodchuck Chuckers. It's Groundhog Day!
0: Get up and check
3: my <laughs> hog out there! Yeah. Sui, sui. Come here,
0: Groundhog! <laughs>
4: <laughs> this is Barbara Dundon for the 20 by 70 podcast, and it happens to be Groundhog Day, just like it was for Bill Murray in the iconic movie by the same name. Ever since the fantasy comedy film about weatherman Phil Connors being caught in a time loop, the words Groundhog Day have had another meaning. A situation where the same darn thing happens over and over and there doesn't seem to be much you can do to change it. So I'm strolling around the Penn campus on a bright February morning to ask a few folks here, what's the Groundhog Day thing in your life? Have you ever had the experience where the same thing keeps happening to you over and over? Yeah, I have. What is it?
1: Well, it was called high school. And it was, yeah, it was, it was bad. Um, not doing my laundry in time. Just <laughs> I, like, never learn from that lesson, and then it builds up, and it's, like, a lot to do on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So,
5: yeah. No, I mean, well, just now I was on Locust trying to get people to call elected officials, and people kept ignoring me over and over again.
1: <laughs> going to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> work every day work. And even on weekends. <laughs> so I'm always going to work. <laughs>
4: So there you have it. Evidence that the fabled groundhog day factor is still at work in many lives. I'm about to have my own groundhog day moment. Somehow this 20 by 70 podcast always seems to start with me hauling my heavy audio equipment out all over the city and then when I'm done I have to throw things back to our host all cozy in his warm studio. Speaking of which, I suppose that's where you are right now, Chris Satulo.
1: Dreams that-
0: Absolutely right, Barbara. This is Chris Satulo sitting quite comfortably, thank you, in our podcast new home at the Wexler Studio inside Kelly Writer's house on the Penn campus. And yes, this is 20 by 70, the Committee of 70 podcast that's for people who expect more from Philadelphia. As we settle in at Wexler, it is in fact Groundhog Day. Of course, we know that as you listen to this, February 2nd is in the past. But in this episode, we still plan to be all over this tawny angle, like white on rice. Why? Well, anyone who's ever hung out with David Thornburg, 70s fearless leader, has soon found out the man is absolutely obsessed with Groundhog Day. And why is that? Well, let's go to the man himself. Hey, David. Chris, how are you? You
3: you, you hit the nail on the head. Groundhog Day is a long-term obsession of mine, not just mine, but our entire family's. Let me kind of roll back the tape to, uh, I think, 1993 when the movie Groundhog Day came out. Uh, I saw it, first run in the theater, and I was hooked from the outset. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I grew up in Pittsburgh, so Punxsutawney is actually a place, not exactly a place a lot of people go to, but after that movie hit, uh, Punxsutawney and the whole culture of Groundhog Day exploded. I have watched the movie probably... 20 times. Uh, there's a ritual family viewing. It uh, will be this mm-hmm. evening, February mm-hmm. 2nd, uh, where we quote, uh, you know, it's almost like lip syncing. We just... Right. Uh, it's like
0: the Rocky Horror Picture <laughs> Show for nerds. Exactly. So. Or Mystery <laughs> Science Theater 3000. Yeah. I yeah. mean,
3: it's it's a sight to behold. And actually, four years ago, today, uh, my daughter Blair and I set foot on the hallowed ground of Gobbler's Knob and witnessed the experience uh, ourselves. And this just captures the experience, 30,000 people, 5.30 in the morning, 5 degrees, Mm -hmm. what could be better? What could be a better way to celebrate, oh, so many things, not just this this rite of early spring? But here's the connection that we're going to explore today. Because you see, the Groundhog Day movie is about a nasty guy played by Bill Murray who falls into the curse of repeating the same day in his life over and over and over again, that day being Groundhog Day. And it's only when he changes his behavior that the calendar actually flips and there is a February
0: 3rd. So Learns to love.
3: So he it's actually, and, and this, is, this is not only a fact but a true fact, that the movie is very meaningful in the Buddhist faith because it represents the um, – stages of enlightenment that you are... Exactly. Yeah. So here's the connection. Let's see if we can bring it home. I've always been fascinated by those things in whether it's personal life or public life that repeat endlessly over and over and over again to our detriment that we need to step in and say enough is enough. We need to change our behavior we need to get out of that, uh, that closed loop that Albert Einstein described when he said uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So that sets the table as best as I can.
0: Yeah. So in our world of Philadelphia policy and politics… I imagine you could find some examples of Groundhog Day behavior. They're abundant. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I tell you, my my current one. You know, for some time, I've been convinced that the city's tax policy uh, is a huge deterrent to our our growth, uh, particularly because we have an inordinately high wage tax. And there is an effort in the state house right now to change our tax structure. And I hope and expect if it passes could significantly alter the competitive landscape in Philadelphia for the better. So that's been – and I've been on that case for, let's call it, 20 years. And I would love nothing and, better and than
0: – What would be the over-under <clears throat> uh, estimate on how many hearings on that topic that you've testified <laughs> on over the years? <laughs> Let me count the days. There is a Groundhog Day-like quality yeah, to that. And, in absolutely. fact, in
3: my files and computer, I have I, – I literally, when I get called upon, just reuse stuff from – 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 years ago. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that this is the year when the cycle is broken and Philadelphia is put on a new path to job growth.
0: So, David, as you well know, any discussion of how to avoid Groundhog Day syndrome in politics or policy obviously and inevitably leads us to a discussion of logic logic models. models. Wait, what's that I hear our listeners shouting into their earbuds? David, they're saying they have no idea what in hell a logic model is. Well, we'll take care of that. Well, David, luckily for the both of us, sitting across from us now in the studio is Dr. Claire Robertson-Kraft, who just happens to be the most enthusiastic proponent of logic models in this solar system and probably the whole of intergalactic space. Welcome, Claire.
5: Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me to talk about logic models.
0: Yeah, you should see the smile on her face. It can only be described as beatific. (laughs) Okay, first before we delve into the logic of logic models, tell us a bit about what you do, Claire.
5: Well, so in addition to being the most avid logic model enthusiast, I'm also the director of Impact Ed, which is a center based here out of the University of Pennsylvania that works with organizations to help accelerate social change by building data-informed practices. And so we help organizations think about how to evaluate their impact and then share their story with the broader community.
0: Okay, so you try to help organizations avoid the syndrome David just cited, you know, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Okay, now I, they're screaming in my ear, tell us more about logic miles, So we're going to get to it. Um, and we're going to discuss how they can be a cure to the Groundhog Day syndrome. So to do that, we obviously need to bring in an audio clip from those noted American philosophers, the boys of South Park. Claire, could you set this clip up for us a little bit?
5: Sure. So this is actually one of my favorite South Park clips. It's where the characters learn about the underpants gnomes. And the underpants gnomes are a group <laughs> of gnomes who actually steal people's underpants with the goal of making a profit. And the reason why I think this is a great video, uh, just in general, but also to learn about the concept of logic models, is because it demonstrates the disconnect that often exists between what people do and what they hope to achieve as a result.
0: Okay. That's a good setup. Let's listen to the clip.
5: This is where all our work is done. So what are you going to do with all these underpants that you steal? Collecting underpants is just phase one. Phase one, collect underpants.
1: So what's phase two? Hey, what's phase two? Phase one, we collect underpants. Yeah, 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 but what about
2: phase two?
1: Well, phase
2: three is profit. Get it? I don't get it. You see? Phase one, collect underpants. Phase two? Phase three, profit. Oh, I get it. No, you don't.
3: Chris, this is a red-letter day when we're talking not only about Groundhog Day, the movie, But South Park. February 2nd, 2017 is a day that will live in my memory for a long time.
0: It is, it is one of the peak experiences of my life, too, uh, David. So, Claire, good doctor. Uh, Let's tie it all together now for David, for me, for a waiting world Groundhog Day, the Underpants, Gnomes, and Logic Models. First, let's start with the basics. The tension has been killing people out there, I'm sure. What actually is a logic model?
5: Okay. Well, a logic model, as you may have guessed from the video, is a tool that helps organizations think about how to connect the work that they're doing with the impact that they hope to have. So it has two key sections, your planned work, which breaks down the activities that the organization does, the key resources. And then the second section, the intended results, which connects that work to ultimate outcomes over the short-term, medium-term, and long-term.
3: Here's I have to jump in, Chris. Mm-hmm. Here's my groundhog day reference. It's, this is a simple logic model: if the groundhog sees his shadow, then six more
0: weeks of winter. Right. Although if am I mostly right? Well, if we're doing activities, we'd say right.
3: There's no activity. There's no. There's no activity. No, we'd say there. by
0: groundhog. Reach into Groundhog Hole, pull out Groundhog, (laughs) test whether sees shadow. (laughs) Then you draw the conclusion, right? You got you got to dress it up a little bit. Yeah, you got to make
5: it fancy. You also have to think about over the long term. So then, what happens the next time the the Groundhog Day decides to come out, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, getting back to semi-seriousness about logic models, you have done and are doing this work with a lot of nonprofits in town that that do things and hope to achieve policy outcomes and/or real-world impact on people. In your experience working with organizations, how often have they even thought through what becomes the logic of the logic model? Are they really connecting what they're doing, the inputs and the activities every day, to some
4: real-world outcome?
5: So there are definitely some organizations that are thinking about the connection between the work that they do and the outcomes that they want to achieve. But my experience is that most organizational leaders are working incredibly hard and tirelessly that they don't typically take the time to pick their head up uh, for a breath of air to actually think about how that connects to the outcomes that they want to achieve. So they're so passionate about the work that sometimes that keeps them from really thinking logically about what it's going to take to achieve their impact over time. Yeah,
0: to recklessly inject another mammal into this, they're sort of on the hamster wheel Mm -hmm. every day. So um, in some senses, the value of a logic model is it's a moment to pause and actually sort of think and then picture what it is you're actually trying to do, um, what do you see as the benefits of that happening? What have, what have you seen as the benefits for organizations of going through the process?
5: Yeah, so what you said I think is really important is that a logic model clearly depicts the theory of change that you have for your organization in a way that isn't complicated. So you might have a you know, 20, 30, sometimes 50 page long strategic plan, a logic model is one page and it connects the key activities that you have with the key outcomes that you want to achieve. And so internally, what I've seen that helps organizations do is really prioritize what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing to reach their ultimate outcomes. And also, as they get data back about whether or not they're achieving those outcomes, they can make changes in an iterative way to whatever their program might be so that they're not waiting for the next five-year cycle till the next strategic plan to actually decide to do anything differently.
3: So let me jump in, um, not to put you on the spot, but are there any organizations or individuals in particular in Philadelphia who are uh, leading practitioners, kind of bright spots of the logic model world?
5: Bright spots of the logic model world, huh? Well, we are working... (laughs) Made that up all myself. (laughs) We are working right now with 10 organizations in Philadelphia, teaching them about the logic model process. And while they're all still learning, I will say one of the things that's been really interesting to see is that this isn't just a tool that applies for any one particular type of organization. So we're working with arts and culture organizations, education organizations, um, watershed organizations, you know, a community-supported agriculture farm is doing a logic model. So I think that this is the kind of tool that can be used across a wide variety of different sectors. I don't know that anyone, myself included, is really a logic model expert, um, but I think that it can be used in a w- wide variety of different settings.
0: I wanted to go back, uh, Claire, to a phrase you used uh, a minute or two ago, that is pretty critical to the whole concept. And it's like one of those phrases I don't think I ever heard four years ago, and now every time I turn around, somebody's saying "theory of change." Mm-hmm. What is a theory of change, and uh, how important is it to a logic model?
5: A the theory of change is the uh, vision that an organization wants to achieve and all of the critical components are pieces that they think need to be in place in order to achieve that particular vision.
0: Right. But it's sort of like actually thinking about like, well, how is doing this going to help us do that? Going back to our original thing, how is collecting all the underpants that are all going to help us make a profit? And I have to say, I mean, the, the reason why when you showed me that clip the first time I loved it so much is... Uh, In my years as editorial page editor at Inquirer, working at WHO, I can't tell you how many advocates came into my office wanting coverage or support for something, and they were basically underpants Mm gnomes. They were full of passion (laughs) that they were going to do X, Y, or Z, and that was going to change something in Washington. I'd be sitting there going, and how? (laughs) How is doing this over here going to produce that impact over there?
3: Here's the experience I've had around that is you ask somebody to say – so explain how this is going to work, how this leads to that and that leads to this and mm-hmm. ultimately towards the outcome. And people then respond by trying again to convince you about how important the issue right. is that they're pursuing, which is – that's not the question that I'm asking. Which To me, is mm-hmm. like this is the real value of a discipline logic model uh, even in, let's just say, political action because it forces you to try to line up the sequence of, uh, of what you're doing. That leads to what you hope is the the right outcome.
5: And the other thing that it does, both for nonprofits but also in the political world, is it forces you to think about whatever assumptions you're making that undergo those connections. So sometimes people can say, We think that whatever action we're going to take is going to lead to, say, you know, increased voter turnout. Like they could draw a line, but they're making assumptions about the people that they're serving or the stakeholders that they're working with. So that's the other real value I think a logic model. Uh, provides for organizations and leaders is that it forces them to think about the conditions that need to be in place or the assumptions that they're making about why their work is going to have an impact.
0: Do you see the use of logic models growing? I mean, I, I know you're an evangelist for it, but I mean, are, is it becoming more common?
5: I do. I think that particularly because the foundation world is starting to demand organizations demonstrate their impact, which has not always been the case in the world of philanthropy. People are starting to question now more, how do we back into from what we're doing, David, to the point that you raised, into how ultimately we're going to achieve our outcomes. And a logic model provides a tool for organizations to be able to do that.
0: So we have Claire. We have listeners out there now going, "How did I manage to wake up in the morning, and feed myself, without knowing about logic wells? But seriously, people might be saying this could work for my organization, my civic group, or whatever. Or but, let, let me just throw this in there. I used to use this kind of thinking with when
3: I was teaching at Fells with my students, and they're trying to think about their careers. You know, so it's sort of like take one job. You know, if you do that well, what's that lead to? I mean, it's it's kind of. Thinking in a, in a chain of events and uh, causations and yeah. activities and so
5: forth. I use logic models for all parts of my life, so I don't think <laughs> it's just for organizations. I have a logic model for a lot of things, and so I think... So
0: we, so last year, I was yeah. privileged to attend Claire's wedding, which was a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> event. Did you do a logic model for your wedding?
5: Yeah, that's great. I really wish I could say that I did, but I could do one right now if you want to talk about what that would have looked like.
0: Ex-post-facto. We had lots it. of outcomes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, to to wrap it up, Claire, if people want to learn more about this, is there a resource that you would recommend to them that they could Google?
5: Yep. Uh, The Kellogg Foundation has put together a great guide on how to create a logic model, and we also have linked from a a number of resources off of our website, which is impactedphl.com. Great.
0: Great. Again, that was Dr. Claire Robertson-Craft of Impact Ed. Uh, If you want to write her a thank you note for how she's just changed your life, uh, you can uh, write in the 20 by 70 and we'll give you the address. Thanks so much, Claire.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: One of the Committee of Seventy's most successful initiatives in the last year was Voices of Voting. It's a play commissioned by Seventy, written and directed by local playwright David Bradley, that brings to life the voices and words of people both famous and obscure who took part in the civil rights marches of the 50s and 60s in the South. The play is aimed in particular at young audiences, trying to inspire them to participate fully in the democratic drama that was opened up to them by the heroism of those long-ago marchers. Just such a young audience gathered at a West Philadelphia school on Martin Luther King Day recently to see Voices of Voting performed. Our colleague Noah Levinson filed this report.
1: Voices of Voting was commissioned by the Committee of Seventy this past summer and first performed during the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. The play, which is targeted to middle and high school students, features three young actors engaging with the audience, singing original music, and acting out vignettes from the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s.
2: That's what they'll call you, a troublemaker. They can put you in jail if just three of you get together.
1: How
4: can we teach American civics if we can't vote ourselves?
2: I'm not talking about teaching civics. I'm talking about the law. You're putting the three of us in danger.
1: The actors take on dozens of different roles throughout the course of the performance, portraying civil rights icons such as John Lewis and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They also bring to life some of the lesser-known heroes of the era, like Cajer Lee, the son of a slave, who stayed active in the fight for voting rights even after his grandson, Jimmy Lee Jackson, was beaten and shot to death by state troopers in Marion, Alabama. Actor Ife Foy said that of the character she played, the one who inspired her most was Cheyenne Webb.
4: Because she's eight, you know, she was eight years old and she snuck out of her house to join the march. And if an eight-year-old can do it, anybody, any age can do it. When was the last time a grown-up bothered asking what you think? After the march, Mrs. Fulton came up to me. She was laughing and, and crying and saying how bad her feet hurt. She said, Cheyenne, how'd I do?
1: The play is meant not only to highlight the stories of the civil rights movement, but to tie them to the necessity of civic participation today. Though most in the audience were too young to vote, Performers pleaded with them to register just as soon as they become eligible.
2: Gotta start somewhere if it's ever gonna stop. Gotta hustle at the bottom, get it shaken at the top. Every big jump takes a skip and a hop. Every giant downpour has his first mm-hmm. drop. If you ever gonna count, gotta start with number one.
4: If you're never gonna speak up, then
2: sister, you'll be done. But well, nothing's gonna happen. Said the father to the son. If that's what you think, pops, then they got you on a run. Be a drop in the bucket. Drop, drop in, in the, the bucket. bucket. In the
0: Now we're joined in the Wexler studio by David Bradley, the playwright and director of Voices of Voting. Welcome, David.
2: Thanks, Chris. Great to be here.
0: First off, congratulations on the play. Even for someone like me who's old enough to remember
2: the actual events, your your play is eye-opening. It's moving. it's, It's inspiring. Thanks. I appreciate that. This has been a great thing to do. I love theater that can get at civic themes in, in some new ways. And we, we both had a lot of fun putting this together and got, have gotten a lot of energy in how it's hitting the audiences who've seen it.
0: That's great. That's great. And, uh, you know, there's some hope that you're going to be able to take it to a broader level soon, right?
2: We're, we're certainly thinking about it and have some ideas of how, how we can reach more people and older people with it, you know, 18 to 35-year-olds. You know. Well, I'd, I'd be delighted to see that happen because... Uh.
0: It's, it's just really, really good. It's really good. Thanks. Um, but what I'm hoping to do here with you today is to do something a little different and and take that history that you bring to life so vividly in the play and tie it into very current events, namely the uh, recent women's marches and the related uh, protests. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put out a somewhat provocative take and invite you to react to it. Um, uh I guess I sort of have a problem with marches. I've had it for a long time. And and sometimes it seems to me that, particularly in America's recent past, people who who take part in and organize marches are trying to take that shining model of Selma in the civil rights era that that you wrote about and kind of claim to be emulating Dr. King and John Lewis and the, the other people you write about. But it seems to me they're trying to sort of catch some reflected glory or some inherited weight from what went on in the civil rights movement. But what they do doesn't have the same weight. They have a march. Enormous amount of energy goes into it. There's a certain amount of coverage, and then there's no follow-up. It just kind of dissipates. Now, I'm not saying that the women's march is necessarily like that. I hope it isn't. But it seems to me that, like, marches have gotten easy or too easy to organize, too easy to get a crowd, to get some coverage. And then people forget that the march isn't really the point. Making change is the point. Um, you're looking at me somewhat skeptically. So go ahead. Tell well, me what you think.
2: Well, I, I don't think anybody would argue that the point of a march is to start to stimulate activity and move towards change. And that's certainly, I think, the moment we're in now. You now, one of the things we discovered in the research for Voices of Voting and got to lift up in the play was that there were a lot of teenage activists in Selma. Selma had been written off. Uh, the organizers around voting rights and civil rights you know, said, don't go to Selma. We can't make anything happen there. But this guy, Bernard Lafayette, went down, and the first people he started to organize were teenagers, not the people you normally hear about, but you know, Cleophas Hobbs, Charles Bonner, Betty Mae Fikes. Um, some of them stayed in it over, over decades in, mm-hmm. in, in social change. And Charles Bonner said something we quote in the play. Where you know, he said, we put our drop in the bucket, and those drops— create a pond and ultimately a waterfall of change, it's a collective effort. Mm-hmm. So the march is the beginning, I mean, you note that, and I don't think anybody who marched on January 21st in Philadelphia or DC or New York or the the, the six other continents where marches took place, including scientists marching on their ship in Antarctica, thought this is an end stop. Mm-hmm. I think it's a beginning. It's um, They can happen more quickly now. The March on Washington took almost a year to organize, well, now they, there was no social media. So now things can happen more quickly. That's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if it's like, you know, making a fire out of out of birch and it burns fast and then burns out. Right. Um, I think that's not necessarily what we're going to see. Right. I think I think this is a beginning. And there were a lot of people there who probably hadn't marched before.
0: Um, so I think we both read the uh, the piece on The New York Times op ed page by the professor from North Carolina. I'm not going to try to tackle her name. Um pronouncing it correctly, but she made what I thought was a, a crisp argument that it is, as you noted, much easier to get a crowd to organize a march in the age of social media so that in some ways the analogy back to the civil rights movement would not be with Selma, which was the culmination of a lot of organizing hard work and, and the creation of a movement. It's more like Rosa Parks on the, the bus. It's the warning sign that something's happening here. Pay attention.
2: Yeah, that's that is the analogy she makes. I think what we're in the moment of now, I mean, as anybody who, you know, has tried to get through to Senator Toomey's office in the past couple of weeks, there's an enormous amount of political activity going on and and I like, I like the thinking around the marches that um, a, a Washington elite professor named Ellen Mayock wrote about in her blog Gender Shrapnel. She was at the March in Washington, came up for, you know, in the Women's March in Washington, came up from Lexington, Virginia. She says she hasn't talked to anybody who's involved in the march who hasn't gotten more politically involved Grassroots, and that's what we're seeing. So I think it it could be easy to dismiss this as a phenomenon. I think David Brooks patronizingly referred to it as mass therapy, and that's fine, and that's easy to do from his perch at the at the Times. But I we don't know yet. But Mm -hmm. I think what we do know is that a lot of people are responding to a political moment, and we could be seeing the drops in the bucket towards the ponds of a movement towards the waterfalls of change, like Charles Bonner talked about. There's, I mean, there are community meetings happening. You know, there's one Sunday in my neighborhood from the Indivisible movement following off the march. Mm -hmm. So that, again, is the fire burning, you know, in a more sustained way. Right. So Indivisible, and if people haven't heard about this, Indivisible
0: is founded by a couple of, I think, former congressional staffers, Mm -hmm. but people who really know... Uh, how Congress works and what actually moves uh, members of Congress and what they can safely ignore. And they've basically created a toolkit, a guidebook, for people to do uh, effective uh, lobbying and protest. But earlier in the podcast, uh, David, you weren't around to hear it, but we had this rousing discussion on what's called logic models, which in the nonprofit world are a way of making sure their organization is really thought through, okay, we're going to do all this stuff, but what's your theory of change? Mm-hmm. How is it actually going to produce an impact? Um Looking back at the civil rights era to sort of project this modern model back on what Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Council and and STIC and all that were doing, what was their theory of change? What was the logic model? We're going to do this now, and it's going to produce actual change in Washington through what chemistry?
2: Well, I I mean, I think related to, to what Voices of Voting was about, Dr. King and others were really prioritizing and trying to get President Johnson to really put voting rights at the fore, and Johnson was resistant. I can't do it. I want to do stuff on poverty, to... and King was like, "If we don't have equal access to the ballot, the other stuff doesn't matter because we're not full citizens." So, and in, in Selma, there were these repeated things. Teachers march. There was in October of '63, almost two years before the famous, you know, attempt to go across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. There was what was called Freedom Day, where people stood outside the, the courthouse for eight hours in heat. To register to vote and nobody could get in, so there was a sustained. You picked
0: it wonderfully in the play. A great, great, Thank you. Play. That,
2: that was a fun scene to work on because you're you're really getting at an elemental request: mm-hmm. one man, one vote, and a sheriff saying, you know, move on. Right. And um, th- there was a real unified effort towards this one thing. So now we're in a different kind of moment. You know, maybe there's not there there's not one clear. There there are unfortunately many things. You're clearly an
0: engaged citizen, you know, active in a lot of these issues. You're also an artist looking at history unfold. As an artist, what are the scenes or the moments or the characters you might be looking
2: for to try to, as, as things unfold, how do you as an artist look at what's happening? That's a great question. I, I think I'm interested in diversity of voices now, um, the the passion of teenagers who are now, you know, they're. You know, I've got two teenage sons. Their coming of age was Barack Obama as president, and now there has been this kind of radical shift out of that. Yeah. So what's right? what, what, what's the whiplash of a developing young person who's experienced one thing and now has to be thinking about another? That's a great voice to think about. What's the, the, the young voting-eligible citizen thinking, the ones that are really engaged and have to be in a sustained fight and action? And the ones who just don't see how this affects their lives don't trust the system, might might be very engaged in their communities, but don't trust the political system. I, mean, I think as artists, we're always trying to find multiple points of view that can play off of each other, can distill, and then we're looking to find images. I, I was at uh, the rally last Thursday when, when uh, the president and the GOP got together in solidarity there uh, at the Lowe's. And... I found myself looking in faces of people who were really genuinely scared, hurt, and moved, listening to a nurse talk about how do you look into the face of the most needy and vulnerable people in the healthcare system, and then listen to people who want to cut off their access to care. So as an artist, you're moved by the emotion and the rawness of that. And I think we're in a raw moment, and what artists can do is listen and frame things so that we maybe see something in a way we haven't seen before, and I hope there is that, so that we can break through this. Artists also lift up the stories that aren't told. That's
0: David Bradley, playwright, thinker, director. Thank you so much, David, for spending some time with us, and best of luck taking Voices and Voting Nationwide.
2: That's what needs to happen. Thanks very much, Chris. Appreciate it.
0: So that's it, the Groundhog Day episode of 20 by 70, the podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia. Time to offer some thanks. First and foremost, we give mad props to the good people of Kelly Ryder's house, including Jessica Lowenthal and Phil Reese, who have generously agreed to let their Wexler studio become our new podcasting home. Also, thanks to Zach Cardner, our audio engineer, who so capably led us through this inaugural episode here. We're grateful to all of them. We're also grateful to you for listening. If you like what you heard and want to go back and hear any older episodes you missed, you can find the goods on SoundCloud, iTunes, or any of the other reputable podcasting platforms. And if you like what you hear, please consider doing us a favor. Tell your Facebook choir or your Twitter flock to give 20 by 70 a try. Thanks also to our guests, Claire Robertson Craft and David Bradley. And as always, to our intrepid producer, Barbara Dundon who frankly does all the heavy lifting while I just sit here in this cozy studio and flap my gums. Praise and gratitude as always to 70s head honcho and leading Groundhog Day obsessionist, David Thornburg, Philadelphia's Civic Yoda. Gratitude as always to 70s hardworking staff and volunteers. I could name them all, but then we'd run so long, we'd have to change the podcast name to 40 by 70. Yes, it is time for me to shut up. But one last thing, never forget this main point. Expect more Philadelphia.